Hello and welcome to the first episode on Catalyzing Radical Systemic Change. Why did I choose that name for the podcast and the core of my brand? I think it's because we truly, truly need to dig through the root causes of the current paradigm to build a new paradigm that makes the existing one obsolete. In this podcast series, it's all about mapping, catalyzing and cross-pollinating what I think are the necessary building blocks towards the transition ahead towards a planetary civilization. And my guest today is Indy Johar. He's co-founder of Dark Matter Labs. And without further ado, I'm really curious, Indy, my first question for today is why the name Dark Matter Labs and what is it? <laughs> Thank you. Um... Why the name Dark Matter, I think, uh, is is a good one. I think what was my history was, you know, I had been part of building, uh, you know, Bristol Urban Beach to part of with people like Jonathan Robinson building the Impact Hub Network to part of building uh, WikiHouse, open source housing, part of building OpenDesk, open source furniture. Having built these things, what became apparent to me was that these things were whilst had a revolutionary component what was behind them was actually a real constraint so you can build 3d printed housing but actually the real issue is our theory of land and what, what we understand by land you can talk about urban regeneration but actually if your business model is based on the inflation of land you will always end up inflating land rather than actually driving human outcomes Uh, you can talk about decentralized production of furniture, but if you need warranties, then your quality assurance mechanism will always quasi-centralize risk and thereby centralize responsibility. And I could keep going. But what, and what became very clever, clear, and you could build impact hubs, but if your business model was all around selling real estate, fractional real estate, desks, you would always resort to being a desk provider. So if you want to turn, transform value you had to go into the deep code of these issues you had to look into actually what the fundamentals were our theory of land our theory of money are looking at the nature of business models much more fundamentally in a complex emergent world and actually what you realized was that there were much more fundamental errors and those fundamental errors needed to be reimagined and i think without doing them i don't think we can change the world around us our world around us is an implic uh, an implied order of these deep codes it's an implied order and unless you can rewire the deep codes i don't think we change the world and i don't think we change the structural challenge we face as civilization so that's Which really brings... where sorry that's really where the dm the name came from but also where the kind of impetus came from so let's stay with the name and the first question would could you elaborate on what you mean more with these deep codes because it seems almost that your theory of change of wanting to impact is based on reimagining but then also building the experiments and prototypes on this like deep code level so i mean this is where the dark matter thing really comes into its own so exactly as you say our theory of change has increasingly become, I mean, we come from a place-based background. I trained as an architect. Many people either trained as, you know, either were geographers, uh, policymakers. We've come from an idea of how space and environment works. And I think where I would start this conversation is that We've built a worldview, a transactional worldview, which is basically built on an idea of ownership and transactions. Ownership means that there's a single point beneficiary to a thing, and the purpose is to optimize the outcomes for that single point beneficiary. So ownership enslaves a complex ecology of land to single point ownership. And in a way, what becomes very clear in a complex, emergent, entangled world, the idea of single point ownership, single point abstraction, actually drives violence and a tearing in the entanglement. So things become optimized 
towards a single point rather than actually looking at the richness of what's, what the entanglement really provides. And maybe this worldview of the single point idea of stewardship through single point optimization was useful. But as the world has become massively inter, inter, interdependent and actually the scale of human geoengineering and geoinfluencing has grown, the levels of tears in the world around us are becoming so significant that they're becoming auto-destructive to the environment around us. So what becomes let's, very clear... To, let's let's cool. just interrupt you because you have this very rich uh, vocabulary. Um, when you talk, when you say single point interventions are basically leading to a tyranny of the ecology, right? And they're actually colonizing this this, yeah, this object could you give could you give a couple of very just hands-on examples of how contracts are built so let's use the idea of a forest a forest uh, is reduced to the value of timber in the idea of ownership and optimization on the material value of a forest in terms of timber and until recently its carbon sequestration value, its water purification value, its ecological systems, its whole sorts of pres preservations of ecological diversity, pharmaceutical potentials, all these things are unvalued largely. What is valued is the value of timber. So we have the reduction of, we tear timber out of the forest, literally, because that's the only thing of value. Now, what that's done is that's reduced the world to these simplistic value propositions, monolithic, mono-farming uh, theories of single point values. Now, why that becomes important is that that theory of single point ownership, single point value, as it's scaled, has become so large. And that's what I would say is when people talk about the Anthropocene, what they really mean is this scope of single point value has become so large that it's tearing the fabric of our entangled ecosystems. Now. What, what I think is really important is that when you look at this, I think the deep code issue is how we have to go from optimizing transactions and single point value to optimizing care. So in a complex system, when I don't know the full entangled value of a forest, my relationship with the forest has to be one of care. So when I even talk about removing timber from it, it has to be with care to all the ununderstood, unvalued things that are already there and its value in space and time, right? So this goes from being optimizing to me to actually operating in care. And simultaneously, and this is where it gets slightly metaphysical, it, in a sense, the forest exists in a relationship of care to us. So we talk about the mutuality of care. Now, what that turns is the whole theory of ownership doesn't become about owning things it's about recognizing the sovereignty self-sovereignty of the forest and our self-sovereignty in a relationship with it now imagine a world with that starts to be the way of operating where we do not think we own things to single point human-centric so short-term centric value but actually recognizing everything as a self-sovereign thing in a new relationship now why this is important so this is just about the contract then The idea of self-sovereignty, self right? So how do you build a contracting, the contract, contractual infrastructure of care in society? How do you build this idea of, of self-sovereignty, mass self-sovereignty? And then the theory of money becomes important because if your money production is massively centralized, which it currently is, 93% of money is produced by four banks in the UK, the money itself will drive the asymmetric Uh, abstraction. So we have to change our theory of money to decentralized production of money in order to respect this complexity. So I think this is what these are deep codes and these deep codes then manifest in everything around us. How Landscape level business models, how do you do, uh, look at ecologies, everything, houses or everything around us. Um, whereas I think and I hope the listeners our viewers also get like a first idea of the metaphor of a forest, obviously being more than the sums of its parts, which is, I think, how I understand the entanglement. So it's the biodiversity, yeah. it's uh, 
the, the nutrients in the soil, it's uh, the, the carbon capture and storage capacities. It's like all these okay. sorts of things. Could you just, because it's such a beautiful, uh, you know, easy to grasp metaphor, could you elaborate on what you mean with entangled assets in, in like a different um, setting? So Absolutely. moving from a, from a forest to another example? So let's imagine, let's imagine a house, right? Now, a house is also an entangled reality. We create the illusion of private ownership. But the reality is that plot of land mm, absorbs water. That plot of land, uh, actually, the house itself, if you have a bad house, it generates cost, healthcare costs for the health services. If you have a bad, uh, a bad house, which has got lots of noise pollution, actually, it means that the sleep means that uh, the lack of sleep and the lack of concentration will reduce the cognitive function of children and how they will perform at school. If you've got bad air pollution, it's, it, it, the asthma costs will have ma massive effects on on so on healthcare costs. Uh, if it if the plot of land is e ecologically inert or uh, actually you pave everything over, you're going to create liabilities for everyone else. And also that plot of land is fundamentally its value comes from its access, access to labor markets, access to transportation, access to parks. So the value of the house, if I took a house and put it in the middle of Nova Scotia, say a house in, I don't know, um, in Berlin, right? Right in the middle of Berlin, picked it up, put it in the middle of Nova Scotia. How much is the house worth? No disrespect to Nova Scotia, it's not worth very much. So there is the entangled access value, there's the entanglement of the value itself, of the liabilities it creates. And then there's the material value. So the material waste, the embodied carbon of a house, all the way to the waste impacts that it holds if the if, if you end up uh, destroying the house after or kind of uh, knocking the house down after, after 10 years, you've also created a huge amount of waste. So the house itself is whether it's social value or whether it's actually the equal access value or whether it's the impact value in terms of uh, fuel poverty it generates. These are all functions of that entangled piece of reality. So the house is equally as entangled as the forest. We choose to create these bubbles of, of, uh, of falsehood. So when we talk about, you know, we obviously did the work uh, exploring the kind of, uh, we analyzed the high line. And what we found very quickly was that the high line generated huge amounts of uplift value for the houses adjacent to it and the plots adjacent to it. So this is where social infrastructure generates value for the house itself. So this entangled view is fundamental to looking at our, our worldview. And I think one of the big transformations we're moving from is being able to see the world in isolation, isolating objects, isolating value, to recognizing the entangled value of things. And that requires a fundamental, not only a new relationship of care, a new relationship of governance, but also recognizes that there a whole new class of many business models where the value flow is a many to many value flow which requires a completely different way of thinking after feeling it makes sense to stay on the deep code level for a tiny tiny moment more so i imagine it's from ownership to stewardship from one to one point single interventions to like uh, a portfolio of interventions it's from um like optimization to care single point, opti um, single point optimization to multi-point optimization and relationships of care exactly self-sovereignty kind of self so introducing mass self-sovereignty in relationships of care uh portfolios give, give some examples of self-sovereignty yeah. what do you exactly mean with self-sovereignty yeah, I'll, I'll give examples for, for all of them. Uh, so so self-sovereignty, imagine a house that owned itself. Right? Just for thought exercise. Imagine the house owned itself and its purpose was to provide housing, but also housing and its purpose was to provide uh, the best type of housing it could. Its purpose was to provide ecological services. Its purpose was to provide energy. So what this does is it turns the house from being enslaved to the idea of the owner so if i'm a landlord i optimize value to me not the multiplicity multiplicity of values that the house needs to provide so it optimizes capital returns for me 
And what that does is starts to change the affordability of a house. So uh, if you're an owner, what happens is I buy the house, the house inflates in value, I take out money, and the next person has to buy it for slightly more. So it creates an inflationary idea of the value of the house. This is a house that owns itself, and you don't own it, you become a steward. So this is not rental, because you're not renting against somebody who's stealing value out of the system. And you're not owning because you don't own the asset. The asset owns itself, and its purpose is to provide these multi-beneficiary outcomes. Now, that type of thinking, that type of idea of the decentralized, you know, the construction of new forms of autonomous agency, which is, I think, what we're talking about, is only now starting to be possible. So that starts to change our relationship of how we fund this. So this house was probably funded by a perpetual bond, or is that we're doing the work on this, is funded by a perpetual bond. It's not funded through equity mechanisms. So you don't have rent-seeking systems in there. It, it has a new relationship of contract of value, which is actually, I, my contract is about stewardship and contribution to cover the costs. So it's fully transparent in that sense. So it, the materials aren't maybe even owned by the house, but they're service contracts. So there's a whole relationship how the materiality is owned and recycled. So this is a, actually a, an idea of a house which self-constructs. And that's just, it's a very, I know it's an edge piece idea, but I think the idea of transforming our relationship with the world to that of actually recognizing the sovereignty of everything, I think actually transforms our relationship to a relationship of care with the thing itself. And that I think is the real deep transformation that we're talking about, this mutuality of care between autonomous, autonomous things to which we have a relationship of care, transforms everything in that process. So that's one example. Another example is, okay, if we're talking about portfolios, so currently our portfolios are designed for risk management, dispersal and management risk. Another way of looking at portfolio investing is to actually looking at a portfolio which has a vert effect. So you do 20 investments which are actually working together to create a macro business model. So a, a poor example would be you can invest in, uh, you can give money to building a high life, cost $173 million. But you can pick up 10% of value on all the adjacent properties, which means you get that value back in under 10 months. So and these are numbers that I've been, you know, if you, people want to look at smart commons, they'll find the work that we've done around this. And so this is, again, another point of actually a new type of business model, a new type of value flow. And I think this becomes really critical. So that these are illustrative models. So I think these open up new ways of, of, um, of constructing value in that sense. And I think this is not just for this. We're doing this for Trees AI, for example, uh, Trees of Infrastructure, which looks at actually how do you understand um, a geographic portfolio of liabilities? And then how do you match nature-based assets against that? So these asset liability matching at a geographic level then allows us to be able to invest in those asset liability matching. And this can be a dynamic process with data often feeding, but that's not about owning. You, you don't have to own the trees to do that. You can almost gift communities to be able to build their community responses or their community uh, infrastructure. But actually what you could build is a macroeconomic model around that. Yeah, so I, I feel I would like to, you know, dive a little bit deeper in a concrete example such as Trees AI. What it reminds me of is like, I grew up with the idea of like, stewardship from the North American uh, Lakota tradition through my father and being that like gardener's family child. And I know how weird it felt when my father told me that, you know, people invaded a whole continent, you know, that belonged to everyone. And then they were suddenly making claims and telling the indigenous, you know, to, to, to move to another place because now somebody has a piece of paper that gives him the right to own that piece of property. Without wanting to romanticize um, indigenous cultures, it feels almost as if the deep codes that you're trying to reinstall on a new level supported by smart um, technology, as an example through Trees AI, enable for the first time to build new contractual relationships that actually allow to capture the multiple entangled uh, co-beneficiary uh, spillover effects of, of these yeah, new asset classes. And 
allow also to, to create new ways to invest and finally also to create new ways to like allow citizens to take care about where they live. So I feel like I feel like inviting another participant. And the participant is a slide deck um, from Dark Matter Labs. It's called uh, it's a project. It's called Trees AI. So trees as infrastructure does not read a trees artificial intelligence, but trees as infrastructure. So I'm not too sure if we are going to run through the full deck. But I'm, I'm just super curious what parts you would highlight for the audience. Because in as much as I get it is usually you have the problem that trees are seen as a liability and not as an asset where actually cities and bioregions um, can, can invest into. And this is not just a thought exercise. There are actually cities who are now putting money into that. And we're actually also in negotiations to like yeah, scale that project. So um, maybe can you tell a little bit how that project started, where it is standing, and then we run through a couple of uh, slides just to yeah give some hands-on examples. Absolutely. So I, I, the project started with um, you know, a very simple conversation, whereas the city was looking to invest in a rainwater sewer because of the increased risk of flooding. And the conversation was, why would you not invest in a network of forests, microforests, as opposed to a rainwater sewer? And the answer was really straightforward. And it's an ugly answer, but it's a truthful answer. The rainwater sewer sat on the balance sheet of the city, whereas trees were a liability. On, on it because the ecological services could not be accounted for measured and provided for and that seemed like okay there's a problem here that our accounting infrastructure can't understand uh, the value of nature and can't actually allow us to make relative uh, new for, uh, different forms of investment cases for it so that's where the word trees as infrastructure really came from is how do we see this stuff as infrastructure not just um, visual decoration, dec decoration. And, and we see the effects of this trees infrastructure issue uh, everywhere, whether it's cities that chop down trees after 10 years, because actually the maintenance cost gets too high and the insurance costs get too high. So they tell you we're going to chop them down and replace them with, 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 uh, with new trees. But the reality what they're doing is, is just chopping them down to turn them into cheap um, visual decoration because a tree rarely really only produces its big ecological services after 40 years so what we had was a was, a, was an incentive problem was a fundamental problem now at the same time what we had was actually we recognize all of our cities are facing increased flooding risks certainly in the global north and they're also facing increased heat island risks so cities grow you know temperature increases if we have one and a half degrees average we're going to see cities be three and a half to four degrees higher so what we're seeing is cities also become heat island effects at the same time what we're seeing is massive health uh, health related issues so what became obvious was that actually how do we do a next generation investment how do we make trees as infrastructure investable and then i think the next part of the problem was how do we not do this in a monolithic way how do we not do this as a city goes, hey, we're going to have, we're, we're going to force this down everywhere. Because actually that centralized view doesn't take account of the real needs of hyper localization that's required. And also doesn't build, there is um, stewardship cost of land and the stewardship cost of these things is significant. So, but if trees and uh, micro urban forests are grown by communities and managed by communities, the social value and the health value is massive. So it's no longer, it's not just sufficient to say we want trees, how we build them is as important and how we grow this is as important. Now, what became clear is if you want to do this, you have to think about this at the level of infrastructure. So it's not about projects, it's not making one tree, you know, one small urban forest will not make a difference. You won't deal 
with the rainwater issue or the rainwater flooding issue by building one forest. So somehow we've got to deal with the coordination problem. So we have to incentivize and support the coordinated increase in ecological services in an area whilst ensuring they're, they're provided by decentralized actors. And then what we have to be able to do is measure those increase in services and show the additionality and to be able to value that additionality in terms of what additional water absorption capacity is there, what additional cooling is being provided, and to be able to offset that in the right location with the right liabilities. So in certain locations, if you were to put trees down or a forest down, it wouldn't have those impacts. So you have to be able to match geographically and also coordinate that at a, at a, at a whole landscape level. Uh, when you can marry those liabilities geographically with those assets built by communities, you can then basically start to talk about funding those at scale. So, for example, Glasgow, uh, I think it's Glasgow, but you know, cities have up to 10 million pounds of flooding risk a year. So how do we then grow? So 10 million a year would mean that you could capitalize hundreds of million to be able to invest in the capital to manage that 10 million a year of liability. So that starts to open up a completely different way of seeing trees as infrastructure across the city, but generated infrastructure, micro-generative infrastructure built by communities, which works in coordination at a whole city level. Um, so the way that I understand it, it's almost that there's like, let's say, a base level of data through smart metering generated, um, but there is also something that is very specific to the municipality because obviously it depends on the climate, it depends on the size of the forest, it depends yeah. e even like really even more place-based on the like microclimate, on the slope, on, it's very place-based. So what, what you can do is automate those typologies. So one of the you know, really interesting work that Carlos is doing is she's leading all this stuff and, and with a really brilliant team is actually looking at how you match, match those locational liabilities. So certain neighborhoods will have certain types of risks, whether it's flooding risk in that neighborhood in a particular location, or it will be heat island effects because actually there's people that are elderly and isolated. So actually what you can start to do is really actively automate the 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 allocation of those asset and liability mapping and that then allows you to be able to optimize capital investment which you could almost gift to communities to build these assets in a generative way because actually these are these are civic assets in that in that sense so for, for us trees infrastructure is a new class of civic infrastructure that's emerging as a function of new uh, deep codes and dark matter. So these new many-to-many -many business models weren't possible before, the automated allocation wasn't possible before, so uh, the idea of new forms of governance and contracting in that framework wasn't managed for our relationship with trees needs to, our stewardship of trees needs to be augmented with technology as well to be able to actually build assisted community, uh, community governance. So these new capacities are opening up new possibilities of these infrastructures. And so for this, this is what I meant about how do you use these new deep codes to actually support the transformation and build infrastructure? So, so you know, trees infrastructure is one. We're doing work in like, around soil as infrastructure and looking at the benefits of soil, actually farming and soil uh, in that sense. Or so we're looking at whole city retrofit. So how do you do whole city retrofit, not in a centralized top-down way, but in a community-driven mass mass emergence way and all creating the macro business models and the value models in different formats, which actually deals with, you know, the impact value, the spillover value and the large scale monetary value of those investments and being able to structure that. Or we're doing it on serious play of how we, how we build playful cities and understanding the mental health benefits of that. So for us, these infrastructures are actually examples of what a new type of deep code uh, and dark matter starts to unleash as a critical part of our capacity into the future. Let's 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 give some facts and figures because so far I understand that like trees AI, uh, trees AI is like almost a visible part, like the embodiment of a new type of deep code that we want to install out there, which like gives agency back to the communities, which gives agency back to the citizens. 
when I just look at that um, super large sum, you know, this this huge trillion dollar funding gap, and I see um, the very hands-on example of of trees. How many cities are starting that project like now and with how many is Dark Matter Labs in negotiations? What are like just the scales of uh, yeah of money deployed we are talking about here? So it's a really good question. So one of the things, one of the reasons I, I think looking at the infrastructure scale is important is that one of the big challenges for what I would call good capital in its very very biggest sense or impact financing in its very biggest sense has been that impact financing has been too much focused on startups and so impact funds have been focused almost entirely on startups and social startups whereas actually the reality is we need impact investing to work at the infrastructure level because the quantum of capital involved is fundamentally different which mean, and the quantum of impact is fundamentally different. Now, so when you talk about these numbers, what you find is, so cities like Madrid are looking at 400 million to build a regional forest, right? So we're talking about numbers at the infrastructure level uh, of financing. And that I think not only changes capital, so the impact capital, it uh, changes the, the viability of the market. It starts to change the viability of actually impact financing it starts to put good capital on the table which i think is essential in these sort of civic infrastructures so as you know, the numbers you're putting up these are extraordinary numbers so i don't think this is a you know this is not a tail problem we're seeing large commitments from cities all across milan prague glasgow edinburgh all cities are seeing this as a critical part of the infrastructure so the question is how do we build it and the question is how do we structure it? And the question is how do we structure it not to create sort of um, not to create single point benefits, but actually this plurality of benefits. And how do you do it for 200 year cycles value in that process? And that I think is exactly that. It's a very large market. I think where Dartmouth's ambition is to shift whole classes of value and build a whole new class of infrastructure and civic infrastructure investment driven by impact finance in a way that's never been done before. Um, after feeling now it makes sense to move to a different uh, level of aggregate. So I'm understanding and summarizing that trees as infrastructure is just one class of a new typology of assets that need to be created to deploy massive amounts of capital on an infrastructure scale level to close the trillion dollar funding gap. Because as we know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and this trillion dollar funding gap does not get closed over the last years as we are seeing the market of impact investing moving forward with all the good, good intention um, it has. So I'm wondering, um, when we challenge the way investing is done, it makes sense to have a closer look of like the, the way like philanthropy and impact investing so far are trying to allocate capital. So I'd, I'd simply jump a little bit into the deck of uh, transition investing. And then the question for me would be how much do you already want to share if it's like just on a, let's say, metaphorical level about the to be nascent uh, impact infrastructure commission? Absolutely. And I think. So I had the fortune of working, you know, in the impact, impact investment arena for a few years. And out of the work that we did both in India and the UK, there was two things that became very clear is that impact investing works very well when you follow the spillover values. So like I've spoke about the high line, the spillover value of the high line is massive. Whereas most impact organizations are only looking at the transactional value, but the spillover value is uncapturable or under, understood. So when we were when I was working with KGBK in India, um, we we talked about doing whole system value. 
So we do talk about total village investment, which went from ir irrigation, sanitation, health, education, all the way to, to the top, to, to access to market. Now, when you did that whole system value, you captured and you uh, unfold all the adjacent possibles, you started to effectively get a massive efficacy of value. Whereas if you value, invest in a single startup, it's, it, it generates a huge amount of spillover value, which is uncapturable and uncommodifiable, un which is why I think one of the big challenges for, I think, understand impact investment in the next generation is about op operating in a different way. Yeah. What, be what became clear was that linear models of investing were actually quite challenging and single point models of investing were quite challenging. And what the other dimensions you pull out here is that actually our theory of investing, as investing has been typically far too constrained. And I think this is where venture capital is much better than traditional investment because venture capital understands risk in a real meaningful way, where the level of risk capital and impact investing has been very low, largely because the funds are too small, 20 million, and so they're not reading 150 million. Secondly, the organizations are all, all um, their value capture mechanisms are not sophisticated, so that they take much, uh, it's very difficult to, uh, for them to uh, sort of organize the value. So you don't get the 100x returns, nor should you in that framework. So there is a bunch of issues here that I think are quite structural in the nature of impact investing. When we look at the way philanthropy and impact investing are working, usually they're not working like together, right? They're usually not sitting like on one table and looking like a bi-regional scale or nation scale or at least like meso city scale and trying to alleviate problems that people or other sentient beings like the animals or the forests there have on the ground. Usually it's like either philanthropy or impact investing. So I think what's uh, really needed is like to, to di disrupt the way you know, philanthropy and impact investing intersect. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And this is where, for a moment, what I would say is reality is, um, say, private capital market or pri private sort of, yeah, capital market is focused on short-term returns. Um, it's focused on actually portfolios of risk, portfolio mass, it's focused on actually um, it, it's not focused on non-human uh, I'd call deep uh, deep thrown conditions generative conditions it's focused on optimization to itself and it's not focused on actually future prosperity so the so these failures I would say of our private market are actually opportunities for good capital. <laughs> And they are going to be strategic opportunities for the next round of value. So I think, you know, when we talk about actually looking at long-termism, what is long-term value in society? How do you build the, gene the generative context for longitudinal value? The reality is, um, what is it? I think the stats are that 78% of S&P 100s would not be viable if they had to price social environmental costs. So the reality is most of our world around us is not real. You know, the reality is that you and I can afford probably two pieces of clothing a year if we're going to be living at one and a half degrees. The reality is most of our food system is actually massively carbon intensive and it's not even food. It's largely confectionery, right? It doesn't have a food quality system. So when we look at it from that sense is that most of our world is non-real. Our portfolio models of investing, so the reason why banks, um, our portfolio models are largely dealing with theories of risk is they are about managing risk to the allocation of capital, not portfolios of virtuous impact at the point of actually interaction. So if you looked at the uh, middle soft of Germany, the microbanking, the kind of middle economy of Germany, which was built by high-tech middle industries. That was because effectively there was a micro, micro banking industry, which actually was able to invest at those ecosystem. Their portfolio was not only the company, but also the land, also the housing, also the shops,
because it recognized the portfolio of virtuous effects. Whereas if you're only financing the company, right, at a global portfolio level, you have this massive deficit of financing transformation of all the ecosystems that make that company viable. So what we've seen is a is a kind of degradation of the context. So I think we have to change our portfolio theory. I think we have to change our how we look at uh, as a result of portfolio theory focus on virtuous frameworks. I think we have to talk about actually looking at the risks we generate in time in different formats and looking at the longitudinal effects of our investments and how we operationalize them. And I think we have to look at the content that makes that environment generative and really start to talk about the non-human effects and the future timescale effects, the impacts we're having on future generations. I think the final point I'd make is, I think it's very clear that pretty much the world around us is gonna to have to be reimagined. Go back to my example of the house. How do you find a house which doesn't construct healthcare liabilities? How do you fund the house which doesn't construct ecological deficits? How do you construct the house that doesn't create energy fuel poverty? I think when you start to look at that entangled value, there's a whole new idea of how we finance systems change in a kind of and system level financing. So I personally think that we're gonna to have to build new capacities of financing portfolios for virtuous effects and virtuous outcomes. And they're going to not just be operating at one dimension of value, but actually a whole portfolio, a whole um yeah, a whole portfolio of virtuous interactions. And not everything will have to give the give value back. Like I said, the high line you could have built gifted it on the basis the uplift value was on the on the private properties so i think it opens up a whole new class of business models as a result of that which i think are really critical and the final point i'd add is these portfolios need to be generative right the idea of this is about a portfolio which is generating and evolving over time so we need to have new new frameworks to support that agile outcomes which are non-predictive non-linear in their pathway because actually in a complex emergent world that's not how things happen so how do you invest in a portfolio which is generatively adjusting to risk and liabilities and future possibilities and that's a completely different model of organizing and i think you've seen examples of this like you know early very early first generation examples like ramin bank which invested in a whole circle of women who were actually building some of these. So that wasn't about the exact business model that they were all in, but the mutual accountability. And then the discovery work was decentralized. So I think these are new types of contracts and investing that we're gonna to have to think about at that virtuous portfolio level. And what exact role is philanthropy playing and what are the ways that philanthropy can be really almost kickstarting the engine of these new business models? I think philanthropy has a capacity to, um, to bridge the gap between value and price. So there are things that have value that are currently not priced. And that's usually a gap of like, so for example, like I said about trees, our current system understands the value of trees. We have all the science of it, but the value is not priced in society. And actually what we're doing is spilling over liabilities. So I think a, a key role for philanthropy is to support the conversion of value into price. And this is really difficult, but I'm not saying price purely from a private sense. I'm meaning price to us collectively, because it's very clear the price of carbon is not 27,000 pounds a ton, actually, or 270,000, uh, 270 uh, pounds a ton. Actually, it's significantly more. When you look at the cost and the liabilities it's going to construct in the future, it may be significantly more. So I think as a society, and I don't mean all of this pricing, it's not about pricing it to private sectors, it's about pricing it as society so we adequately understand the risk that we're generating for future generations. So it allows us to make better decisions for how we allocate and manage that. And I think this is a really critical role of understanding that, uh, understanding this framework, and also maybe even challenging our theory of, of price right, at a fundamental level. 
what is the price and the value of one human? Now, uh, myself and uh, Sov and a friend were having a conversation about this. If you look at the infinite, so who is to say, Alistair, that your children and their children and their children's children may not actually save the universe, right? So now I know that sounds, but the infinite future, the near infinite future of your effects, indeterminate effects, mean that it's not possible to put a price on what if you, if something happened to you, what the impact would be on a future world. So if we start to genuinely respect ourselves in the infinite options that we have in front of us, I think it starts to talk about a new form of relationship of understanding the value of being human. So I'm not talking about price in a reductive sense. I'm also talking about price and value in, a, in an infinite sense, because I think if we saw humans as of infinite value, right, genuinely saw things of infinite value and infinite possibilities, my relationship with you becomes different and so does your relationship with everyone else. The theory of going to war and where one person is destroyed actually is an infinite series of possibilities that are destroyed for the world. Yeah. And I and so I don't think it has to be reductive when I talk about price to value. That's why I bring this kind of extreme example in. But I think these sort of conceptual frames are really critical because they open us up to new ways of being and exacting with these others. And I think this becomes really critical um, in, in terms of that process. I want to come back to, to that slide where I see this, you know, it's, it's, it's coined entangled portfolios for shared ambitions. I really have the feeling with the example of trees as infrastructure, we have an almost infinite amount of possibilities where we need a lot of different actors that almost have their different lenses and different perspectives and different theories of change and um, different business models or, um, you know, mm -hmm. attached to it. But in a way, we need to bring them all to one table and then structure the ambition ahead. How do you think uh, this is going, going to unfold? I, I think this is where I think... So what we're seeing is if you want to build these virtuous portfolios, these are hybrid. If you want to build transition, it's a transition built on a movement of actors. So transitions aren't going to be done by one person, right? So, and I think this is one of the big change challenge of what I'd call boardroom theory transitions. You can, you can get five people into a boardroom, agree it and do it. Okay. But a city is not like this. A town is not like this. A town is not a boardroom. A city is not a boardroom. A city is a multiplicity of actors. And when people talk about system change, they often imagine the boardroom allocating investments, right? And going, I've got a portfolio in this system. They have this godlike view where they look at the system map and they kind of go, right, we must do these 10 different things. The problem with that, it feels good. It feels really impressive to look at a complex map. We draw some of them uh, where you look down on it and you feel godlike, but it's actually total rubbish because the reality of a system, if you talk about a genuine system, as opposed to a management model, a system is about the decentralized agency of those actors to work in interdependence with each other in recognition. of That's what makes a system a system. There is agency at every point. So if you want to support a system transforming, you have to build the distributed agency, by agency, look at funding, capacity, leadership, to be able to transform. You have to build a new model of accountability, which is between the actors of agents, a new model of learning, which is across the model of agents. You have to build a new model of um, accountability, that's between all those actors. So you can you can build new forms of feedback where you if you do something, you learn something. So actually, you have to build new craft agency. You have to build a movement of these agents working together. And actually, you have to accept divergence and convergence simultaneously. Yeah. 
So a system which is only converging is very unhealthy because if that convergence is wrong, you have no other parallel positions left. So actually a system is not a monolithic act towards one, one future. It's a converging, diverging dynamic model transitioning. So as funders and strategic transformation agents, you have to build a new theory of investing, which isn't about control. It isn't about linear outcomes. It's about emergent behaviors, emergent sensing. So how do you build the sense-making capacity or the sensing capacity of a, of a system and then the sense-making capacity of a system? How do you build the awareness of interdependence? How do you build the empathy to care about each other's positions? So this is, a, this is the deep code level of large-scale systems change, which is fundamentally about building capabilities and infrastructures and informational infrastructures at the level of a system. And too often, what I see in system change projects is a whole bunch of work which really focuses on what are the 20 intervention points, right? They're still looking for leverage points in the system, whereas actually language of a system, how, we, how a system is describing itself or describing the problem, that's something you can share. You can build shared new languages. So real system work for me is at that, that deep code level. And that, I think, requires a new type of funder a funder which isn't trying to drive an outcome, isn't trying to ask for what is the linear outcome, but is genuinely building the capability and coherence of a system to be able to auto-sense, auto-sense make, auto-agent, and actually build interdependent movements forward, accepting convergence and divergence as not a problem, not a bug, but a feature of a resilient system which is dealing with complex change. Beautiful. So towards the last piece of our conversation from deep code to a hands-on example as a metaphor trees ai that can just serve as an example to a new emergent class of um, assets and give agency back to citizens let's hop on the let's say advocacy level um why an impact infrastructure commission? So I, I think multiple reasons. Um, we're about to move into a worldview, in my view, in my you know, interpretation, uh, where we're going to see significant investment in societal transitions. So the question is, do well, we... Why, why that assumption? I'm curious. Well, curious, I think we're about to... <laughs> we're about to move into a very dark place where the liabilities, uh, whether it's the economic shocks combined with actually climate change effects, combined with, like I said, a zombie economic model right now, actually start to manifest. And we're starting to see that already, energy price fluctuations, food price fluctuations. And remember, in 2008, we had food price fluctuations and there were riots in 60 cities, right? So this is a free, a free will moment. And I would also say, that before climate change kills us, I'm pretty convinced it will be social disorder and violence and war that will emerge far more quickly than the full effects of climate change. So I think that's worth us recognizing. So for me, we, we are going to see that. And you've seen the infrastructure within the US, you're seeing various infrastructure commitments all around the world as people are going to have to rebuild the economy. And there are, so one aspect is that, Second, I think the transition infrastructure, so if we invest in rainwater sewers or whether we invest in trees infrastructure, this is the fundamental misallocation of capital. Investing in rainwater sewers when you can build nature-based assets means that the value of your investment is diminished. A sewer has only the value to deal with flood. It doesn't deal with your heat island effects. It doesn't deal with your health outcomes. It doesn't build community capital. It doesn't build any of that stuff. It's in a way just a stupid investment, right? Right, exactly. I mean, so we're, second we're best, right? Absolutely. What you're building is not only a new investment hypothesis, but it's actually new asset classes that just make way more sense. They're like like they capture way more value. They're way less risky, right? And they generate more value. They spill over more value. So I think for me, there's a kind of misallocate. There's a risk to misallocate infrastructure investment into very old-fashioned mechanisms for old-fashioned Keynesian effects. And actually all that would be doing is, and all that would be doing is 
building more infrastructure, which perhaps is not going to deal with the scale of challenges and not as efficient. Right? So that's one thing. Second thing for me is that actually it's really important that good money, right, which has been working at the organizational level, starts to direct and transform infrastructure investment for this massive spillover value that it can generate. So there's a really powerful means for impact investing to actually not only grow in scale, i.e. talk about allocations at 400 million level, infrastructure level allocations, but actually build a scale of impact effect that's never been possible before. And I think this is a really perfect way. And I think Marina Botza talks about this as an integral view of investing. So how do we take an integral view, whether it's from startups to infrastructure level, that starts to do that as well. So for me, this is an opportunity for, an, for, for, for a typology of money, which recognizes money, which is only self-optimizing, is going to be dead money, it's socially legitimate money. Money that is generative in the value it creates is going to be healthy money, good money. And I think we're going to talk about those differentials in significant formats. So, and I think infrastructure provides a perfect moment to actually be able to deal with it. So I think, that's really where I sit. I think there's a massive opportunity. And as a result of doing that, I think we start to challenge some of the deep codes that we've been talking about in this uh, during, the, during the course of this talk. And those deep codes are really critical as part of those transformations. For me, this is a really powerful step and a necessary opportunity. And I think we'll have, you know, we, we have challenges like retrofitting all of Europe, retrofitting the housing of all of Europe. Now, we can retrofit it for energy outcomes, or we can retrofit it for energy health outcomes, energy health and social social well-being outcomes. Those are choices. And I think the additionality of capital is not that significant. What is more significant is the outcomes and the value we generate. So I think this is a once in a generational, once in a multi-generational opportunity, because I don't think this is even a, I think it's once in maybe 70 years as we, as the societies will have, have an opportunity to invest in the nature of our societies. And I think we have to be able to invest in building the ecological infrastructure, transforming our built environment to actually be humanly generative, right? To actually be not creating microviolence for us as humans. And to be able to build, actually invest in our cognitive, collective mental health capabilities, which are fundamentally the basis of next society. Building that cognitive, collective mental wealth which I think is a new form of infrastructure for future economies, which are built on care, cognition, complex cognition, creativity. So how do we build that? And I think these are the new infrastructures of the 21st century, uh, intangible, entangled, and novel. And I think that is going to create a new opportunity, not only for investment, but also a new model and capacity for society to thrive. Mm. But it's really beautiful in the encounter with you that I really can almost feel the the, the neurons in in my head uh, rearranging every time um, we speak. So I think just to summarize it, I I have the feeling that we need to move from a from a theory of understanding reality as subject object dualism to the entanglement of actually everything or most of what we are surrounded with from simple examples like how we're living in houses, for example, to seemingly simple examples we see out there as trees, because just a forest um, is such a complex interdependent web of life and dml is one organization that helps to make meaning and sense on a place-based level to build the solutions where such let's say beautiful creatures uh, i really love trees right these 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 creatures actually can be self-sovereign and not be like um colonized and extracted just a certain value out of it, but in a way be woven back into a harmonious relationship, which I think is a good example why some of these spillover effects also have such a large impact on the well-being of the citizens, actually, because they literally feel 
they live differently when they are surrounded by, you know, these living beings. And that needs a different typology of understanding how the various types of capital need to be allocated. And maybe finally to summarize it, that also needs the advocacy level to understand that like the scale and the depth and the yeah, radicality of the interventions needed is really, yeah, a possibility and a necessity that we most likely only have for like you, you were saying 70 years, we don't know exactly, but it's definitely not just for one generation. We're now creating the past dependencies for like a couple of generations, maybe not seven, but you no, know, 70 is like at least three, four generations um, ahead. Well, we, we, the reality may be that actually the next 10 years will define the trajectory for many generations, because if we get it wrong, I don't think, I think it's very difficult to come back as all the climate science is showing. And, you know, and, you know, as I've often said, climate is just a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem itself. The problem is how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive the world around us, and the fact that we perceive the world around us through an object-subject relationship through a classification of division has allowed us to construct externalities which are now self-terminating us. So it is in the construction of self and our relationship in the world that has created the permission of actually whether it's CO2 or whether it's plastics pollution or whether it's human-to-human uh, -human violence, lack of care. All these things are a function of those structures. And we mustn't, so climate change is a symptom, but these deep code levels, unless we deal with them, I think we there's a whole cascade of problems coming at a rapid rate. And that's why I think this is, you know, going back to what you said earlier, this is not the same moment, but definitely there is a moment where new indigenous ways of, or indigenous ways of seeing fuse with new technological possibilities to create a new way of operating. And I think this two-eyed model of seeing is fusing to create a new new dimensionality of what it means to socially organize in a way that I don't think was possible even 10 years ago. So I think there's a new moment existing. And I think that's the kind of very beautiful hybrid moment. And that requires us to transform how we imagine ourselves as not, not purely sovereign individuals, but sovereign and interdependent. So, you know, I, and I think... And that's our ability to have sovereignty, i.e. of agency, but also recognition of our interdependence and a recognition of our obligations both in space and time. And that is a different way of being to many of other ways of being. And I think actually not only do you have to recognize it for ourselves, but to recognize it for each other. And we have to recognize it for the world around us. And that then generates a new relationship of how we engage. And that dissolves this subject-object relationship it's a recognition of entanglement the physics is already there there's not a physics question anymore um it's really a conception of how we believe ourselves and this is why if you look at a 400 year cycle you would say that we're almost reimagining and we're having to reimagine all the theories of cartesian logics or classification logics or subject-object relationship log logics the idea of platonic uh, human beings of Vitruvian man by these were all ideas that conceptualized their way forward and I think we're having to reimagine them and that that reimagination is a function of I think for the first time we've reached a fully planetary uh, entanglement and that planetary entanglement is not just an entanglement it's an entanglement with a consciousness so it's a planetary level consciousness satellite images that can be able to show what we're doing and allow us to auto change our behaviors that i think is a paradigm moment that planetary consciousness that's emerging i think exists in the context of new capabilities and that's why i think there's a new way of governing and self-governing that's going to emerge and i and a new theory of entanglement at our planetary level invites us to reimagine our relationships with each, with each other, not through optimization, but through care, and a new theory of freedom, which recognizes our interdependence. And a freedom to thanks. care. Yeah, no, thanks for these beautiful closing words, because in my morning meditations, I 
always zoom out to cosmic consciousness and look at this beautiful marble, you know, floating to space. And isn't it interesting that only seemingly through technology, we were able to grasp the vulnerability of that huge organism we are part of and not, you know, we can't separate us from 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 that blue marble, right? And, and Mars, for me at least, is not a viable option. Um, Ellen and a couple of others uh, will land there, um, but I really have the feeling um, I'm not against interstellar travel and colonizing the Milky Way. You know, quite the opposite. I find that fascinating, and I, I think that's uh, that's plausible in the future. But maybe we should care uh, take of our you know homeland uh, first. You know, of our own garden in front of our back door first. Thanks, Indy. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks.